media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. As you said, open your Bibles to uh, Galatians 3 this morning, taking a couple weeks away from Nehemiah so that we can uh, give attention to uh, uh, the season before us. Today is recognized as Palm Sunday by uh, many Christian denominations, and each denomination has a little bit different ways of emphasizing. Uh, sometimes, if you, uh, many of you, if you grew up in a, a more, uh, if you a Methodist church, that you would have probably already been handed, uh, you would already have your uh, uh, your palm there. Uh, others uh, that you've uh, been in different denominations. This morning you didn't receive a palm. We apologize for that. Uh, we don't we don't really give out palms here. Uh, nothing against that. That is wonderful. But you probably have a lot of different ways that you've celebrated Palm Sunday in the past. And this morning I, I want us to kind of look at that vantage point of Palm Sunday, not so much from a historical perspective. And before you throw stones, it's not that it wasn't a real part of history. But what does it mean? What does Palm Sunday mean? Because we could simply cover the events. All four Gospels did that. It is one of the the uh, uh, events of Christ's life that is covered in all four Gospels. And so we could read through one of those. We could go to Luke. It's probably one of my favorites. And we could see where he comes in. And he comes in as this king. And the people recognize him as king because they are wanting a king. And they shout out to him, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And certainly we would do well to, to look at the historical part of that and, and look at how that applies to our lives. But this morning we want to look at what does that really mean in our lives now? What, what was accomplished by the death of Christ? Or another way to put this, why did Jesus have to die? At the time of the Old Testament prophecy, when these people cried out, when Christ comes in on that original first Palm Sunday, uh, Old Testament history and prophecy was coming true. And, and uh, finally, it looked like this whole ministry of Christ was coming together. And yet, as quickly as they would find out that this was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, and they could look back in Deuteronomy and other places like that, that they were seeing this prophecy fulfilled right before them, uh, within a week, we know that everything kind of ends up in a different direction, or so it seems. We go from this triumphant entry where everybody is crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, and a week later we see Christ upon the cross. To the people, to the disciples even, Jesus' triumphant entry was just that, a triumph of victory. And I think that's why the next seven days were really, really challenging to them. Because in that next seven days, when they saw this triumph go to seemingly a defeat, Somehow, the, even the word just says that they did not quite fully understand. Even though Christ, time and time and time again, had said that he would have to die, that he very much was going to have to die. And he pronounced the gospel to them. He said this is how his kingdom was going to come about. But they didn't understand the kingdom. And even the scripture reveals that at that time, they did not fully understand that. To Jesus, this was the fulfillment. So how can two different groups of people get it so totally different? The disciples thinking everything's falling apart. Jesus saying, no, everything is coming together. It's because they had two different kingdoms in mind. And so oftentimes in our own lives, when we're thinking spiritual thoughts, folks, we we need to make sure that we're lined up biblically to the kingdom that Jesus is always talking about. 
Not, not the kingdom that we think Jesus was talking about. It still is kind of amazing to me that these disciples could have spent three years under the direct teaching of Jesus Christ and still get it so totally wrong. And yet the scripture says that they did not fully understand yet. They didn't grasp all that was happening in front of them. Do you imagine that even in this day, even with the revelation of God, we have the Bible, the word of God, we have now the Holy Spirit of God for those who are in Christ. Do you think it's possible that we could still kind of get things wrong because we're thinking of one kingdom and Christ is pronouncing another kingdom? See, that's our dilemma. And one way we find out that they have two very different kingdoms in mind. The people have an earthly kingdom. We've covered that when we were going through Mark. How each day they were thinking that maybe this is the time that they're going to establish some kind of a government. That Israel is going to come back to its former glory and that they would know this kingdom and it would be right here on earth. And yet Christ continually, without fail, says, my kingdom is not of this earth. I I am not going to go establish a throne here. And so even though he told them, they they didn't get it. I, I share that because the events of the next week really do kind of come into play. Is this a kingdom that's falling apart? Is this a, a plan that's coming together? And the disciples and other believers in that day or others that had kind of followed the ministry of Christ may have felt that very much this whole plan of Christ was falling apart. And yet Christ sees it as very much coming together. It's the difference between a tragedy of Christ's death or the triumph of Christ's death. I want to venture to you this morning that until we see really the gospel, until we really see the beauty of the kingdom that God is presenting in his word, we can make that same mistake. That even in this day and this time, when things just don't go our way on earth, we can say, man, everything's falling apart. God has failed me. Isn't that kind of an easy? We talked about this at men's meeting uh, last time. Five believable lies. God is unpleasable. God is untrustworthy. Just all these different things that are believable lies because we allow the emotions of the moment to kind of dictate our theology instead of the truth of God's word dictating our theology. Is that an easy thing for you to do? That as much as you would put proper theology in your head, as much as you want to focus on proper truth, that somehow when emotions get in the way, that all of a sudden you begin to... God. You're unreliable. I prayed about this. I, I, I asked about this. I've been faithful about this. That all of a sudden those things that we know scripturally are lies become believable lies in our own lives. Why? Because we've allowed the emotion of the moment to dictate over the truth that God has established in his word. I imagine a lot of that happened on this holy week. One of the, the neat things we did when we were in Israel, we, we kind of went through the... Um, uh, the different stations there. They kind of marked off those last steps of Christ and how we went through different parts. And we stopped at each one. We prayed. We reflected on what happened historically there. And each one of those times that we came closer and closer to, to the cross, we began to, to examine in our own lives, what would we have thought if we were living in that day? Have you ever wondered that? You know, today it's like, oh, no, I believe in Jesus and this is what happened there. But have you ever wondered if you would have been there 2,000 years ago. But you've been a part of those that, that very much said, I believe this, even though it looks like it's falling apart. Th- this is what he said. Are, would you have been part of that crowd that had kind of based everything on what Jesus was doing 
prior to the resurrect, or prior to the crucifixion. You know, when they cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes. You know what the, the, what Luke tells us they are referring to? Why they kind of had this excited moment? The resurrection of Lazarus. If you go back and you read the scripture, it says, okay, because Lazarus was risen from the dead and, and Christ had resurrected him. And they were kind of saying, okay, do more of this kind of stuff. In other words, our belief is as strong and the way that you're doing things in accordance to how we think that things should happen. And guys, we're not that different. That when God is answering prayers, when God is doing things in our lives, when God is kind of working like we think God should work, we're like, man, I believe. But all of a sudden, something that we see not as a triumph, but a tragedy, and all of a sudden there's that crisis of belief. There's that faith challenge in our lives. I imagine every Christian has experienced that. I know I have many, many times. And that's where truth prevails. That's where I always come back to truth. And we go, okay, God, this is more of my emotional part. You're the one that made my emotions, so I don't apologize. But right now, my emotions need grounding in truth. Have you ever been there before? Where you needed emotions to be grounded in spiritual, biblical truth. Well, that's kind of our approach this morning. See, one of the essential parts of the Christian faith is the death of Jesus Christ. It's a non-negotiable. As Paul said, if we don't have the death of Christ and the resurrection, we have nothing to preach. Everything, everything rides on that. It's not a small part off to the side. It's not kind of one of, you know, if you had a four-legged stool and you took one of the legs off and you still have three, and if you lean the right way, you can maybe balance. No, guys, you take out the death of, of Christ and the resurrection, you take away everything. You're flat on the floor. There's there's nothing left. And so this is of utmost importance. It's not optional. It's not subjective. It's not. It's foundational. And so this morning, I'm, I'm going to ask you a question. Why Jesus, why did he have to die? Have you ever thought through that? Some of this is kind of in a response. I've had two conversations, ironically, uh, in the last couple of weeks of just about you know, people who were struggling with their faith and they were struggling with the whole question, okay, how can you be a loving God and yet there's still hell and people go to hell? And one way, from a human perspective, from a human perspective, is that a legit question? From a human perspective, does that roll around in your cognitive thoughts? Yeah. Is there a biblical answer? Well, this morning, let's see. Let me go ahead and give you the answer first. Don't you like the teachers that gave you the answer first and then went back and explained how to get that answer, how they got that answer? I always loved that. I, I, I loved the teachers and the professors that said, this will be on the test tomorrow. I'm going, you know, I'm taking notes at that point. Well, let me give you the answer. Why did Christ have to die? Why did he die? Jesus died to absorb the wrath of God. There's your answer, to absorb the wrath of God. God has many attributes. He reveals it. The only way we know this about God is because he's revealed himself. We didn't go kind of do a Q&A with God and say, okay, here's the discovery that we've made. The only way we know these attributes of God and these things about God is because in love he has revealed this to us so that we might know him. He is just. He is um, wrath against sin. He is loving. Would you agree with those things? That God is love. Scripture says that. 
that, that God has a holy wrath against sinfulness or, or rebellion. Would you agree with that? Do you believe that God is just? Well, this morning we begin to look at those three different attributes, and there's many, many more, but we look at those three attributes because I think that they are all interconnected in answering this question, why did Jesus die? He had died to absorb the wrath of God, but I want you to know this morning that God is not moody. How many of you are glad this morning that God is not moody? I mean, can you even imagine such a thing? Can you imagine that it just happened to be your time for baptism and the heater didn't work? Can you imagine that you had to stand before God and he was having a bad day? I'm not trying to be silly here, guys. Our theology means something. And if we're going to stand before a holy God one day, we need to know the basis by which we're standing before this holy God because he is a God of wrath. He's a just God. He's a God who loves. And you can't separate these three. There's not one day when he goes, okay, you're just kind of, I'm kind of loving. And another day where he goes, you know, I'm kind of, don't go there. <laughs> I'm on my last, you know, whatever. Why that's so hard for us is because how many of you are the consistency of, of, of all your different attributes 100% all the time? Nobody. We have good days and bad days. How many of you have days where you feel like you're quite gracious? Come on. How many of y'all admit that this, there's some days you're quite... How many of you would admit that there's days that there's no grace whatsoever left within you? Okay, yeah. And so we go up and down when we're all over the place. What if God was like that? And it just so happened that you were going to stand before this holy God on that day. And you're going, okay, God, I heard that yesterday. Like, you just kind of shoveled everybody in. You know, you just said, come on, come on, come on, come on. And but today, all of a sudden, he's in a mood. Folks, we do not have a flimsy faith. We have a foundational faith. And our foundation of that faith is in who God is, not what we sometimes might think that God is. God is not moody. He does not fly by his emotions. He does not change his mind about right and wrong. He does not adjust with the culture. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. When God sees sin, he is offended and he has wrath against it. And God's judgment against sin is just. Would you agree with that this morning? That when we sin, there is a wrath. When, when there's sin, that a holy God has wrath, judgment, and anger against sin. Would you agree with that? Would you agree that this wrath that God has is just? It's deserved. We live in a time and time, uh, time when when sometimes we see just the opposite in, in our own world. We, we see maybe somebody who does this heinous crime and yet because of the technicality of the law or whatever, walks off free and leaves the victims behind. And we're going, man, that's just not just. We live in a day and time when maybe a judge would even allow his emotions to, to sway one way or the other. God is not like this. He has never, ever swept one single sin under the rug, nor will he ever. Not in your estimation, well, that really wasn't a big sin. It was just kind of like this little indiscretion. God will never allow one sin not to face a holy wrath. 
Every sin will face the full wrath of God because He is holy. This is not good for us because we're a sinful people. Look what God says about this in Galatians 3.10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. In other words, if you're looking to be good and be totally obedient to the things of the law, that is that you do everything right, you, you don't sin, this doesn't apply to you. But he said this, every one of us has sinned. Not, none of us are like God. None of us are holy. All of us fall short of the glory of God. And so he says, For all those who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Do you, do you see that? He didn't say, uh, If you've done mostly right, if you tried really hard, is that what he says? He said, No, unless you have been obedient 100% to, to, to the law, to the word of the law, then, then you're deserving of God's wrath. Paul is even showing them that uh, this is not something that's new. It's actually Old Testament. He takes us from Deuteronomy chapter 27. Look at verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. That is, by being good. This is not good for us. So, so far we're reading and we're finding out some things that are just really not good for us because we are sinners. We have rebelled against God. Some of us maybe say, well, you're a worse sinner than I am. And unfortunately, we haven't said, seen anything yet where it says that God is grading on a curve. I mean, I, I really did. I mean, there were some really hard classes before. And I remember one time getting uh, like a 56 on a paper. It was kind of, I was in shock. But then I found out that everybody kind of got a really bad grade. And so the teacher said, we're going to grade this on the curve. And my 56 became like an 86. That was really good. Yeah, I was, I was relieved. But does God grade on a curve like that? Does God look and say, okay, you know, that was really a lot worse than this. And so I'm going to kind of adjust things. No, his full wrath, guys, please get this. If you're going, man, I, I didn't, I haven't heard hellfire and damnation sermons in a long time. This isn't a hellfire and damnation sermon, okay guys? This is a, this is a, a, a truth of God sermon. God's full wrath toward every sin. Not the really bad sins. Not the sins that we think are evil. But what a holy God would consider rebellion and the trespassing of, of what he has established. And so I, I would think that we would be able to sit here this morning and say, okay, we know that we're not perfect, we know that we've broken laws, and, and we do believe that they're God's laws and they're right, and, and yet, doesn't God kind of work that out? But he said that while perfection is not possible, listen to this, guys, while perfection is not possible, goodness is. Do you think that exists as in our culture? That while we've given up on perfection, then we turn our attention to goodness? I mean, is there a little part of your brain that says, man, I really have a hard time thinking that that person could be eternally separated from God because that was a good person? Do you see what we just did? In the feebleness of our mind, 
In the feebleness of our, our little tiny brain, we just took the truth of words God and His holiness, and somehow we've put it down to a level of man, to our understanding, and kind of our kind of constructing. Well, he wasn't perfect. We'll give you that. But he was a good man. She was a good lady. One major, major, major problem with that, guys. This is not God's way of doing things. This is not God's system. Here's our problem. That's our system. It's not God's system. We like it because it puts everything under our own authority. Kind of puts everything in our own back pocket. It works because we have a sense of justice in our own mind that works. But this is not an agreement to the system of God. It denies his authority. It denies his wrath and his justice. But here's the good news. The good news for us is while this answer does not come from an alternative system, it comes from a totally just God, but he is totally loving. Totally just, but totally loving. Listen closely. God's love does not negate his justice. God's love does not negate his wrath. His justice does not negate his love. Think of these things, guys. God's love, wrath, and justice all coincide in the fullness of God all the time. They don't ebb and flow. That's what we just said about God. He doesn't have good days and bad days. Hey, I feel real loving today. Oh, I'm kind of angry today. He is forever a wrathful God against rebellion and sin. He is always a just God. And he's always loving. He, the fullness of all three of these. And why that's so hard for us is because we've never met a person like that. Have you ever met a person like that? Where they're the per- perfection of all of those fullness all the time? No, if there's one thing that would characterize, uh, that would characterize humanity, is that word moody. Would you agree? I mean, all over the place. I mean, if I preached about three more hours and you were really, really hungry, all of a sudden that smile on your face would go into a little bit of an anger and kind of, when is he going to shut up and be done? When is he going to finish? And all of a sudden, some of the... (laughs) At least we admit it, right? (laughs) All of a sudden, our mood would change. We're moody people. Guys, please, please, please grasp the beauty of this God who is not moody. Don't apologize for his wrath. Don't try to make an excuse for his justice. Don't try to say, well, you know, he's just a loving God and his love outshines these others. No, his love, his wrath, and his justice are in fullness at all times. Look what the scripture says. Why, you know, again, what, our question is, why did Jesus have to die? Because it's the one way, the only way that God shows his love, his wrath, and his justice in fullness. When Christ goes to the cross and dies. It shows the love of God in fullness. It shows the wrath of God in fullness. It shows the justice of God in fullness. Look what the scripture said in verse 13, Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by what? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, 
Cursed is everyone who's hanged on the tree. Again, he, he begins to borrow from the Old Testament. He begins to say, okay, this is not a new story. This is a continuation of the one story that God has established in Genesis 3.15 when Adam and Eve rebelled against God and God says there in that first pronouncement of the gospel in Genesis 3.15, I will send one. I will send you one to save you. That has been our hope then, Genesis 3.15. It is our hope today. What curse? This deserved wrath of God. Our failure to keep the law. How does that work? Look at Romans 8. Go over to Romans 8. Uh, Go down to verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. What what is he saying there? What you could not do, what I could not do, Christ has done. And when we put our faith and our trust in that and we say, okay, God, I could not be pleasing for you. I deserve your wrath. You love me, but you're a just God. And you're a God that judges sin. And I, I've sinned, so I, I can't stand before you without this condemnation. But because I place my trust in Christ, and you have now made him this one that would die in my place. Father, not only do I, I receive your love, but, but Father, I am, I am spared from your wrath because your wrath was placed on Christ. I, I'm really not trying to be complicated this morning. I don't want to take the beauty of the Palm Sunday and the Easter story and say, here's all the complications in a theological sense. Guys, but if we don't have proper theology, if we don't have a proper understanding, because we live in a world where people are just wanting to use, please hear this, the excuse of God's love to stand in the way and somehow can negate the justice of God or the wrath of God. We How prideful, how prideful, how arrogant that we would say, God, uh, maybe that's your system, but here's the system we've come up with. How arrogant to say, okay, God, you should be like this. You should be like that. The beauty of the gospel, guys, is that because of what Christ has done, we don't have to apologize, not that we should in the beginning even think that, but that we don't have to apologize. God is fully loving, he's full, fully wrathful in judgment against sin, and he's just. How did he do all of those things in, in, in one action? He closed himself in flesh, led a perfect life, died in the place of those that would place their faith and trust in him, and he rose again on the third day. says that this curse, that he became the curse for us. Isn't that amazing? Didn't say, okay, Jesus came along and he said, you know, I've lived there for a little bit of time. It's really not all that bad. There's really not that curse. He never belittles the curse. Do you ever see that in the ministry of Christ where he negates or belittles the curse? No, in this demonstration of incredible love, he said, I'll I'll become the curse for you. 
this Holy Week, remember there's going to be a time that Christ comes to the Garden of Gethsemane and he prays. And in that prayer, he's talking about this cup. Anybody know what that cup represents? It's the cup of wrath, God's judgment against sin. Jesus doesn't belittle that. He doesn't negate that. He doesn't say, well, you know, God is so loving. Let's just throw this cup of wrath away. No, what he says is, okay, God, if there's another way, but I, I want to be faithful to you, I will do what I will drink the entirety of this cup of wrath. That's what it tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21, that all of our sins were placed on Christ and, and, and all for those who believe, and, and, and all of his righteousness was imputed to us. Folks, God didn't sweep your sin under the table. He didn't kind of ignore it because he was having a good day and he's feeling gracious. No, he is totally loving. He is totally full of wrath against unrighteousness and he's totally just. So that one day you and I will stand before this holy God. And you're going, are you going to say, I don't deserve to be here? I don't don't think we're going to... In one way, that's our human understanding. But here... Here's what's going to happen. I believe this is the beauty of what's going to happen. Christ is our advocate. Christ as the known substitute for our sin and the one who has made a propitiation for our sin. We're going to, be, we're going to feel justified to be in heaven with God. Do you agree with that? That seems strange. Will you feel justified to spend eternity with the Holy God? You will if you place your trust and faith in Jesus Christ. He's the justifier. We're not, it's not that God just kind of, just, ah, you are mostly good. Because here's the problem with that. Not with Christ being the justifier, but with our own system. How good do you have to be? I mean, is, is there a, a benchmark? Many of you are nurses and you took a test and I imagine you had to get a passing grade. Some of you are lawyers and you had to get the bar exam, you had to get a passing grade. Others of you may be an accountant and you say, okay, to get my CPA, I have to have a passing grade. What's the passing grade? How good do you have to be? Well, according to the word of God, you have to be perfect. Well, we all just failed that test. And yet God in his love, in his justice, still displaying full wrath upon sin, clothes himself in flesh and dwells among us. See, God's answer to this question, why did Christ have to die? Folks, his love does not trump his wrath, nor does his love deny justice from taking place. No, in Christ, there is a total answer. So let's go back to the original. From Palm Sunday, Hosanna, Hosanna, victory. It seems that from a, from a vantage point of anybody, this is victory. To, to what looks like defeat a week later, is this a plan coming together or is this a plan falling apart? To the disciples who did not have full understanding, it's falling apart. But to Christ, to our Heavenly Father, it is the promise of Genesis 3.15. 1 John 4.10 In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This was a plan, a beautiful plan of the ages that is coming together. And on this holy week, 
In a day and age when so many would just question, how can a loving God do this? In the arrogance of that question, we have a biblical answer. God does not negate our sin. He does not soften our sin. He does not sweep it under the rug. Christ paid full payment for our sin. The wrath of God. So that you and I could justly stand before a holy God one day because of the finished work of Christ. This is good news. Man's way, that wasn't good news. God's way without the answer of Christ, this is not good news. God's way, which always had the intention of Christ going on our behalf, dying on the cross, rising on the third day so that we could have victory. This is good news. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you. And Father, there is a certain arrogance that we have sometimes that we would kind of bring you down to our level, Father, that somehow we think that you're moody and when bad things happen that somehow you're just really angry with us and, and mad. And Father, other days when when maybe good things are happening that we think that you're just such a loving God and Father, we kind of see this ebbing and flowing in our own mind because we're basing who you are on our emotions. Father, thank you that your word doesn't do that. Father, thank you that your word proclaims your love for us in an incredible way. But Father, that in your word, it also proclaims that you are a holy God and you are going to show full wrath against sin and sinfulness. You're a just God. And so, Father, we thank you this this whole Easter story, Father. We thank you that, that in your plan, Father, before the creation of the world, Father, that you already have a mindset to send a Savior for us. Father, one day I will stand before you. And I don't know how you're going to do all that, Father. I don't know if there's going to be a review of my life. And, Father, we're going to watch a movie. I don't know how that's going to... I know this one thing, Father, based on your word. Because you opened my eyes to your gospel. You opened my eyes to the beauty of your son. You willingly sent him to die in my place. And he drank that cup of wrath for all my sins. And rose again on the third day. That Father I will live with you forever and ever and ever and ever. Not because I was a good person. Not because you kind of turned your head away from my sinfulness. But that you provided for me a savior. Father this is the Easter story. This is our only hope. And we praise you this morning, Father, that you have given us this hope. Father, this morning, I I do pray that if anyone has questions, Father, that if maybe in their heart they're counting on their own goodness. Maybe they were thinking that since you're a loving God, you're not going to be a a, a God of wrath against sin or a a just God that maybe just your love's going to win out. Father, maybe today they, they begin to see that you don't apologize for who you are. Father, you've just made a way for us. Father, I pray that we would have possibility of conversation today or in the days to come.
For Father, this is the question of life. How do we as sinful people be redeemed before a holy God? Thank you that you have made a way, one way, and his name is Jesus. We love you and thank you as we pray this in the power of his name. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.